Casey Hanmer, has a physics PhD simulating black hole collisions, spent time at Virgin Hyperloop at NASA, and recently founded Terraform Industries. He also writes the fantastic eponymously named blog, um, which, which has explored everything sort of new space adjacent, as well as getting into carbon capture, because why not? We had some audio issues in this show, so I'm using an AI voice generator to ask some of my questions. I think it's pretty cool. So Casey, one of the things I really love about your blog is that, the, is that talking and sort of reading about emerging technologies and their potential commercial impacts is a very fraught thing to do on the internet. Um, but the, the sort of level of rigor and the types of frames that you bring to questions about the future space economy is um, really sort of rigorous and grounded and, 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 and thought provoking. I'm curious, maybe let's start off with like, what makes you most frustrated when you read about uh, space news and, and um, what, what, what are the sort of like type errors that which you think media and other analysts get most wrong with thinking about maybe the future of space in particular? That's kind of comes back to the reason that I started writing this series on my blog. Um, I was basically, you know, frustrated occasionally with, you know, articles that I'd read by journalists who I could see were, were trying their best, but really didn't know much about what they were trying to write about. And it was difficult for them to get a grounding in it because frankly, you can't just open up a book that says, you know, everything you need to know about, about this. And I kind of pondered the idea of, of, uh, kind of taking my Twitter shit posting to the next level and just writing like thousand word screeds, you know, drawing slightly on like internet atheism kind of style. Uh, being like, this is the silliest thing I've read all day. But I, I realized very quickly that doing this, A, wouldn't make me happy. Um, I wouldn't really enjoy it. Uh, and it would only really add to the noise without adding to the signal. And so I took a step back from that and, and actually largely inspired by um, kind of some of the internal NASA leadership doctrine that gets fed into you when you work at NASA. I was like, no, actually, how can we deal with this in a more constructive way? And so I decided that I would write about why it was that it was easy to misunderstand some of these topics and also ways to go about understanding these topics and, and coming at them from different angles and figuring out what might be really going on. So why is it easy to misunderstand these topics? The, the main trap I think is that humans tend to reason by analogy by default, um, because it's, it's a very powerful way of drawing, um, parallels between different situations. Um, yeah, the, the major obstacle that humans face in their life is that all the really key, uh, decisions they make that will affect the course of their lives are typically things that you don't get any, you don't get the, the ability to go back in time and fix. Uh, you might only get to do it once or twice or three times in your life. If you're, if you're very unlucky, maybe you get married six times. I don't know. Um, you, there's, there's no, you know, good books of wisdom or study or like practice that will tell you, you know, like this is how you go about, you know, at the age of 21, selecting a life partner that will not, you know, be problematic or, or, you know, choosing a career when you're 17 or whatever. Um, and so, you know, humans have always had to, you know, even going back to ancestral heritage, have to do the best they can with what they have. Um, it's kind of a miracle that we get it good enough as often as we do. I think, I think it's, uh, it's underrated that humans have clearly evolved to be extremely lucky. Um, but actually when it comes to things that are really deeply outside, um, our natural experience, um, it's not good enough to, it's, it's, I should say it's often not good enough to just simply analogize and you have to do what Elon Musk would refer to as, as first, first principles analysis. Uh, and this is something that's taught to physicists and other kinds of scientists as a matter of course, in, in part of their education, although not everyone. Uh, learns how to apply it well. Um, in particular, when I was teaching uh, back when I was at Caltech, I found that the the smartest students could get quite far just by memorizing stuff. Uh, and it, you really had to kind of drag them kicking and screaming into like, <laughs> no, no, you have to pretend like you're Newton and you, you don't know the answer already. So, so you kind of have to take a first principle, uh, first principles approach to it. 
Um, and part of the reason that that's the case for space, as it is for other areas of human endeavor, which involve interaction with fundamentally hostile environments, um, is that humans are pretty good at, you know, getting procedures right, um, but not perfect. Um, and if the environment is sufficiently hostile, you have to be perfect every time or you will just die. Um, and so, you know, as you see, you know, human activity expand into, you know, increasingly hostile environments, I'm thinking like, you know, oil rig diving operations, uh, skydiving, flying planes, flying rockets, going to space, um, you, uh, surgery for that matter. How about cyberspace? Maybe we should there. I think that's an important, important caveat, but just in terms of like professional standards, even in, in engineering, like civil engineering, what you see is as these uh, professions, uh, professionalize, there becomes a more or less universal adoption of kind of checklist based, uh, approaches. And that's just to kind of avoid, uh, the situation where someone forgets something one day and they forget to put the landing gear down or whatever, and, uh, and it causes a problem. So, uh, part of the fun of writing this blog for me has been taking this uh, physics stuff that actually was trained in late high school as part of the physics Olympiad program in Australia, and then applying it to space stuff and showing that, you know, even though, uh, no one, you know, no, no human, no, uh, lightly evolved ape, uh, as we all are can, can really claim to know for sure what is going to happen here. There are kind of certain bridges that we can build into this abyss of our uncertainty and ignorance that, that allow us to kind of say with relative confidence, certain things will have to be true. And then everything else kind of has to fit in with that. And if you're very, very lucky, um, enough of these things can kind of fit together that you can define an architecture or, or basically understand the complete, uh, shape of the solution, uh, despite the fact that, you know, you still don't actually know what's going to happen. So are there other aspects of sort of like physics training or like physics going from physics up and thinking about these, uh, these types of questions, which, which you'd like to elaborate on? Well, I mean. I don't want to give people the impression that you have to go and do a PhD in physics to understand this stuff. Um, really the, the essence of it was something as I mentioned was, was drummed into me in like a week or two of, of fairly intense training in the Australian Olympiad program, uh, physics Olympiad program. Um, so shout out to the, the those very patient trainers who kind of just kept explaining this to us over and over again until we got it. Um, but yeah, basically it, it amounts to, um, finding ways to translate the problem into a way that can kind of fit into our, into our cognitive GPU, uh, and then be processed there. Um, and for me personally, it's a strongly visual thing. And, and most people actually do, do benefit from you taking a sheet of paper and basically drawing a full diagram of what's going on and then defining all their terms and then deciding what fundamental physical property is going to be used to solve this problem, whether that's conservation of energy or force balances, or, you know, there's probably 15 or 20 different kind of fundamental rules in physics that you can use. And then, and then, and only then do you get to kind of writing down equations and looking up integrals in books and trying to find solutions. But, but really, uh, if you can get to that point, you've, you've already cracked the problem because you understand you know, the, the fundamental approach to take to solving it. And I think this, this applies very well in space because obviously the physics is the same in space. Um, even though, you know, very few humans have ever been there and, and no humans can survive there, uh, for really much more than a few seconds without extremely elaborate technology. So Casey, can, can you bring that logic to one question? I don't know, like reusable rockets or a constellation or, uh, you know, <clears throat> dome on Mars. Like, what do you, uh, uh, give, give, give the, give the listeners yeah. like an example of, 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 uh, that train of thought. Yeah. Okay. I'll talk a little bit about reusable rockets. Um, and this is kind of like kind of where my writing in the space, uh, originated circa 2016 was thinking from the outside about what SpaceX was trying to do. And, and although I know a couple of people who work at SpaceX, I, I'm always careful to state that like what I figured out is stuff that I've figured out by reading from the outside. I'm not using privileged information to disclose this. Um, and, uh, if I even had that information, <laughs> um, so. Um, the fundamental problem is, you know, uh, Elon Musk and numerous other people are strongly motivated to find a way to get humans, uh, to Mars and preferably also from Mars back to earth, uh, when they're done with their mission. 
And there are all kinds of physical constraints that make this difficult. But one of them is that um, even though Mars is somewhat smaller than the Earth, it's still uh, quite a large, it's one of the larger planets, um, or I guess larger bodies in our solar system. Well, that's, that's a silly statement. Um, you know, obviously, most of the things in our solar system are tiny grains of dust, but whatever. Uh, the, essence, the essence of the problem is that chemical rockets are relatively weak, uh, even compared to Mars gravity, which is about a third of Earth's. Um, and so uh, most uh, conventional kind of descriptions for how to take humans to Mars involve um, orbiting uh, Mars orbiting platforms that the, there's a kind of a Mars ascent vehicle that takes the humans from the surface of Mars back into space. Then they rendezvous with the orbiting capsule and then they can fly back to Earth. And so that breaks that jump into two separate parts, um, which reduces somewhat the requirements uh, in terms of the ability of the rocket to do the job. Um, but uh, the, the fundamental observation that kind of underlies the design of, of Starship was that if you made a big enough rocket with a good enough engine, it might just be possible to fly from the surface of Mars all the way back to Earth without having to do any kind of space station rendezvous along the way. Um, and if you can build a rocket with that sort of fundamental capability, it actually opens a lot of other doors. So that if it has that much, what's called Delta V or like, uh, the ability to change its velocity or the ability to fly a certain, um, from, from certain locations, to other, other locations in space, it would also make a, an absolutely killer upper stage for direct earth launch. Uh, it would also be able to fly to and from the moon from low earth orbit. And that's why, you know, this starship concept as it has kind of gradually matured over the last, I'd say five years, uh, has become so compelling and so kind of invasive to all these different spheres. It's because, uh, if you can kind of get on top of solving this like really nasty, difficult problem, which is getting humans from Mars back to earth. That's after all the hard part. Um, then you can use the same approach to solve all, all, all kinds of other things. Uh, but in order to get there, you need a rocket that has like a mass fraction of at least 10 to one. So like 10, sorry, like 90% plus of its, of its takeoff mass is fuel. And that's kind of crazy. Like, uh, if we think of a car, um, you know, a car with a full tank of, of gasoline is, you know, hundred pounds of gasoline or something like that. It's, it's not a whole lot compared to the overall mass of the car, but for, for a rocket, you know, it actually has to be like almost all fuel tank with like, you know, a tiny little space at the top for people. Um, and then the engine itself also has to, uh, use a fuel that's compatible with uh, manufacturing on Mars because it's very difficult to get the fuel to Mars to, uh, you know, it's just extremely uh, mass intensive to bring all that fuel to Mars. So you can make fuel on Mars using uh, carbon dioxide, uh, in the atmosphere and, and a few other tricks. And, and then you need a rocket that's able to produce enough, um, basically sufficiently hot gas coming out the back of it. And so, you know, basically you put all these requirements, like I kind of alluded to earlier in, into a big box and turn the crank and out comes something that looks a lot, looks and feels a lot like the Starship. Um, and actually you can kind of see like Starship has got undergone these internal evolutions, uh, from, from the original kind of uh, unveiling. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, so, so we've done a number of shows now about sort of SpaceX and Elon and the evolu evolution of the company and, you know, the various series of Falcons and it's important to the space ecosystem. What we haven't talked a ton about is the, the future of SpaceX, um, uh, Starlink and um, Starship being the two most prominent uh, products, which are, you know, on the on the near horizon. So since you brought up Starship first, Casey, um, what is Starship? Uh, well, well, now we know why Starship was made to get us to Mars and back. Super cool. Great. But uh, aside from aside from uh, letting us live out our interplanetary fantasies, uh, how does this rocket ship differentiate itself from you know what we've seen uh, what we've seen before both from both from uh, spacex as well as its other global competitors yeah it's a great question um well as elon musk will be the first to tell anyone the the key difference between starship and other rockets is that it's a, a prototype fully and rapidly reusable rocket um, and this has never been done before it's extremely difficult to do uh it's not even entirely certain that it will be possible to do you know even if humanity spent the rest of its existence trying to solve this problem it seems quite likely now that it will be but it's not a guarantee and it's kind of hard to overstate how important it is to have a launch system that is dispatchable, capable, and fully rapidly reusable. Uh, the common analogy is like if airplanes were 
disposable, then it would be extremely difficult to you know use them for almost anything. Um, and that's kind of how we've been operating with rockets up to this point. Um, and so Starship has this this kind of innate capability potentially to reduce the cost of launching stuff to orbit by a factor of 100 or so, uh, and to also at the same time increase the net capacity, like the net kind of uh, flux of payload to orbit by maybe a factor of 1,000. Uh, and this is incredibly transformative um, because it means that uh, when you're going to space, instead of having to spend 10 years like custom engineering a really light, high-performance uh, deep space spacecraft or something like that, um, you can actually just kind of bodge it together out of standard parts, like we would for almost any other engineering project, uh, and then launch... Uh, 100 of them or 500 of them for the same sorts of prices um and that's just a it's a really kind of transformative way it's um it's almost like it's it's intended to be a conveyor belt like a logistical system for kind of just moving mass from one place to another place um and and the amount of uh custom engineering effort required to make this happen is very very low starship how much bigger is it than what uh than rockets that commonly go up to space today uh really a lot bigger it's yeah that's that's a technical term it's um it is it's actually not that much taller than most other rockets, um, but it's a lot wider and uh, the, the fuel inside it is a lot denser typically than what has been used for other kinds of rockets, particularly in the US. Um, so just to kind of put it in perspective, the current design point for Starship will have its its uh, takeoff thrust being 2.2 times higher than the Saturn V, which was the previous biggest, uh, most powerful rocket ever launched. Um, and its payload to low Earth orbit in expendable mode would be north of 250 tons, which is 10 times, uh, 10 times more than the Falcon 9 rocket, which itself is no slouch in reusable mode, it would be maybe half that. Why is space so hard? Well, I mean, to, to take it right back to physics first principles, ultimately it comes back to things like the ratio of the um, the overall size of the earth, like the number of atoms in the earth to the strength of chemical bonds between different materials, <laughs> um, which both determine the, the temperature achievable for the exhaust gas and also the strength of the combustion chamber that is containing that gas as it's being combusted. And... That, that kind of, that's kind of like on the material side, that's the challenge. Uh, but then in terms of the technology side, there's also like substantial, I'd even go so far as to say severe systems engineering challenges, um, because any spacecraft that's capable of doing this is enormously complex. It, it, it kind of comes back to what we're talking about, uh, about, um, cyber engineering or like computer engineering, um, earlier, which is that basically the ability of computers to perform advanced calculations has advanced so quickly, the power of computers advanced so quickly that really our computer science discipline hasn't, hasn't been able to keep up with that and establish like, you know, rock solid standards that, that, uh, have the same degree of reliability and, and kind of public trust that you would associate with a bridge or a building in terms of not falling down. Uh, and this is why things like, you know, Google and Facebook go down every, every year or so. And people are just kind of shrug, you know, I guess that happens. Whereas, you know, if, if all the buildings and all the bridges fell down once a year, it would be a, a different matter. You know, right now, you know, you can launch something into space for like $2,500 per kilogram, something like that. And um, the Elon tweet back of the envelope estimate of what Starship could do would be $10 per kilogram, which even if it's, yeah. you know, somewhat off is a remarkable step change. W what does that mean for sort of the future of what humans can do in space if um, all of a sudden it only costs my, um, you know, 100 and I don't know how much I weigh in kilograms, my 90, my 90 kilogram self. Uh, you know, less than a thousand, less than a thousand bucks to get up in the sky. Yeah, I think it certainly, I mean, that's, that's a question that again, is very difficult to know the answer from like from first principles. And there are thousands of people out there. Uh, and I love reading their blogs who will tell you all the different kinds of business models that will now be possible because of reduced launch costs and improved access to space. Uh, really, we won't know until it's, until it's there and we see exactly who's able to make the business plan stick. Uh, but certainly we'll, I, I would imagine that we will see an expansion of space tourism, um, an expansion of, of uh, scientific exploration, 
um, and and really kind of the realization by uh, you know senior leadership NASA and Congress that it will be possible to have you know Antarctica style bases on the moon or possibly on Mars uh, for you know less than a hundred billion dollars a year, which I think is the U.S. government is, is extremely wealthy, but I don't think they're going to spend that sort of money on on moon bases just for fun. Casey, what is the sort of like industrial base competitiveness advantage that everyone outside of China will be able to access because they'll have, you know, starship prices versus, um, you know, the Chinese space ecosystem, which is probably going to have, you know, another you know decade plus before they're able to to um, create a a, um, uh, a vehicle that has this sort of launch uh, capacity and reusability that Starship is promising perhaps as soon as the next year or two. Well, I think it's, it's enormously um, advantageous for companies, particularly in the United States, um, who want to launch constellations to do various kinds of um, commercial activities in space. So that could be Earth observation, could be radar, could be communications. Uh, and we've seen a, a variety of companies in that space uh, with, with varying levels of maturity. Um, I think, you know, if I was European, a Japanese, Russian, I'd be kind of worried because, you know, while it's possible in principle to launch their commercial payloads on uh, on Starship, it's, it also undermines their guaranteed um, access to space and they could find their own kind of domestic launch vehicles in much the same predicament that ULA found itself in. Um, and as far as China goes, well, I think it's probably it's probably fair to say it might take a decade or more for them to replicate the um, performance levels of the Raptor engine. Uh, but actually, you don't need that sort of performance if... Uh, if you're just kind of launching to low Earth orbit. Um, it's only really important if you're trying to launch large payloads back from Mars. Uh, and so as far as like a fully and rapidly reusable upstage uh, goes with kind of the belly flop maneuver and the, and the flaps and, and the propulsive landing, uh, I would expect to see several fast follows, including uh, foreign governments in that space uh, within the next five years, which is good overall. I think it will improve competition. Uh, uh, Casey, uh, do the, what is Leo? What is, you know? Fair, fair enough. Leo is a uh, low Earth orbit. Uh, so that's where the space station lives, um, and also a bunch of recently created uh, Russian satellite uh, anti-satellite test uh, debris. Um, but then, in, in order to get from low Earth orbit, you know, to, to escape the Earth, uh, to even get as far as the Moon or, or to other planets, it's it's um, about the same difficulty again. Which is actually one of the reasons that Starship is is um, able to contribute so much there because it has the ability, uh, at least designed the ability to refuel in low Earth orbit. And thus, kind of get a completely reset upper stage, uh, fully fueled in, in low Earth orbit, which can then fly, you know, proportionally much, much further with a much larger payload. One of the key things is that um, traditionally designers of spacecraft have found themselves to be uh, really severely constrained when it comes to essentially every single subsystem uh, that they have to deal with, from computing power to uh, mass, thermal disposal. Um, downlink is always a problem. Like there's, there's always difficulties in, in getting the data that's on the spacecraft back to Earth and vice versa. But uh, as Paul Wooster is, is fond of saying, and Paul Wooster is the uh, development engineer at SpaceX, who's, who's in, in large part driving the star, Starship effort, mass covers a lot of sins. So if you're able to increase the mass uh, of the spacecraft, and actually this is kind of reflected historically as well in the hydrogen bombs that the Soviet Union developed were less advanced than the American ones. And so their, their ICBMs had to be proportionally larger, which meant that when the space race got kicked off, um, the Russians were able to launch much larger satellites and, and larger payloads and more humans into space more quickly. Yeah, so like a lot of, a lot of the kind of difficulties with, with design and fabrication that applies to conventional spacecraft uh, can kind of be um, forgotten in a way. Um, to, to put that in perspective, uh, for some of your listeners, um, it's not uncommon for Mars rovers and things like that, which are really operating at the frontiers of the, of like the physically possible, 
uh, and each Mars rover weighs around about 2,000 pounds or, or 1,000 kilograms to have the, the mass of its various subsystems to track down to one-tenth of a gram, uh, which is about the mass of a postage stamp. So that's like seven orders of magnitude. Uh, and, and everything there is, is machined out of chunks of, of titanium or aluminium, you know, to, to absolute paper thinness, uh, to the, to the point where if it was any thinner, the whole thing would just crumple on mm. impact. And that I hope will, you know, the, the sheer quantity of engineering effort that goes into making that happen can be diverted and used for, for other things that can increase the net, uh, you know, um, production of science, uh, scientific data. So I think now is an interesting point because we, we sort of got to got to NASA to talk about what in this new paradigm, uh, you know, the U.S. government space organization should and shouldn't be doing. Like what can be what can be left to the private sector to figure out and where is it most necessary for for government dollars to be um, uh, to be pushing forward? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I should say, first of all, that I don't speak officially for NASA, uh, even in my capacity as a former NASA employee. Uh, so it's basically my own opinions here. Um, I think there's a common misconception that there's this kind of uh, perception, it's, it splits roughly left-right, that like, you know, either you know, government should do everything or government should get out of the way. And I think that actually, if you look historically at yeah. the, the most successful government agencies, and actually I would definitely class NASA as one of those, uh, where they really shine is when, when they, they share the burden in a way that, that speaks to their respective strengths. Um, and I also think it's a popular misconception that, that NASA does nothing other than launch humans into orbit. Uh, actually, NASA's mission is is enormous. <laughs> like for like massive directors, they also do a bunch of research into like uh, aviation, air traffic control, a whole bunch of different things. Um, but as far as the as launch vehicles go, I think it's it's pretty clear at this point that that the private sector has out, uh, outclassed NASA. Uh, and I wouldn't actually lay this at the fault of NASA in particular. I know uh, several former NASA administrators, well, like not NASA administrators, but like NASA administrative officials, um, who at various points, you know, dating from the 90, early 1990s. I tried to put NASA's uh, launch vehicle uh, procurement and development on a more stable and secure footing, and in many cases, you know, pioneered the development of of uh, the X thirty three or the DCX or other kind of prototype vehicles that, in large part, uh, fed into the early development of the Falcon Falcon class of rockets. Um, but at the end of the day, NASA has to dance to the tune that is uh, kind of played by Congress, and Congress uh, at you know at various times has been controlled by senators and other elected representatives with very parochial interests that kind of play to building you know enormous expensive and and kind of like optionally useful launch vehicles and i think you know that situation has become more and more intolerable as time has gone on and i think it's it's pretty obvious now that that um it was a it was a terrible mistake to allow this to, to occur um and but the responsibility is is actually very broad kind of broadly based it's not it's not possible to really point the finger at any one person and say this is your fault but yeah it's kind of the situation we're in now so so i don't think that nasa really uh, is well served by trying to compete with the private sector NASA has done amazing things by um, by being a guaranteed buyer for the private sector, sure. um, by by basically being like the the tentpole uh, client for SpaceX uh, launch and for access to the space station in the early days, um, but also I think in a in a way that's um, underappreciated by the by the public at large by providing its expertise um, and set, you know, basically sending expert delegations of experts to to um, Hawthorne and and other private companies and basically saying well you know here's our here's our experts on all this stuff you know take take their knowledge and use it. And, and this is sometimes less welcome, but, but almost always it's been. Yeah. So I think, I think, um, if you look at what SpaceX has done, um, as far as like very large companies, they have very few products, like they have a launch vehicle, uh, they have two vari variants of that launch vehicle and they have a space capsule and now they have Starlink and they're building Starship. But like in terms of the things that, that the clients are paying the money to do. It's like two or three products, which allows them to be super focused on delivering value for those customers in a very kind of well-defined way, 
like the rocket has to work and it has to launch basically on time and go to the right place. Um, and I think traditionally, actually, the private sector has always done quite well when it's been able to focus deeply on product and delivering value. Um, but that uh, you, the US private sector in particular has benefited enormously from the fact that it it's kind of sits downstream of this kind of enormous conveyor belt of technology development that's funded across probably a dozen different agencies. I'm thinking like DOE, DARPA, DOD, NASA, uh, amongst others, that um, NOAA, NOAA comes to mind as well, uh, that basically are spending you know, quite large sums of money employing a, a standing army of, of technical experts who are doing like kind of the really long range work, the really long range thinking technology development, um, and and just kind of building this this block of expertise that that kind of forms a revolving door. Like a lot of people go from NASA to SpaceX and then back again or whatever. Um, and, and it really kind of uh, undergirds the strength of the entire industry. And I think it's it's very clear if you look at, at countries that uh, do not have the resources or the or the strategic priorities to do this, that it, it also kind of largely explains why those, those countries have been unable to to kind of foster and develop their own kind of uh, domestic commercial space endeavors. So, you know, that, that's kind of my take on that. Um, the, the government has, has traditionally done quite well doing long-range technology development um, and, and then gradually, like, basically giving that away to industry. In the nearly five years I've been doing this show, recording remotely has always been a bit of a nightmare. Halfway through a great conversation, a connection would die, servers would time out, the audio quality would go busted. The better a conversation went, the more stressed out I got that I would end up losing the audio. I tried at least five different software solutions, including Zencaster, Zoom, Ringer, and Squadcast, but all of them lacked the functionality and reliability of what I finally landed on, Riverside. Riverside has a great feature suite from local and cloud-based recording so that even if my guest internet is garbage, I still have decent sound to share with you all, to 4K video, which I'm going to start using to spruce up the China Talk YouTube channel. But most important, it just works. Before Riverside, 10% of my recordings broke, but in the past two years I've been rolling with Riverside, it has been absolutely rock solid. If you're a podcaster or YouTuber, or just someone who runs online events, check the platform out at riverside.fm. I mean, I think I think like the Dune copter is actually gonna yes. just you know that's gonna be a much easier sell in Congress now that people have seen that movie. Well, yeah, it's um, I, I was I did actually go and read the book again after I uh, sorry read the book after I saw the movie and I was like, mm, this it's like a very dry you know it's a hot not cold world whereas Mars is very cold but you know it's um yeah it's, it's clear that uh, George Herbert had had read some of the um like earlier it's kind of somewhat more pulpy Mars focused literature. Um, what a time to be alive back in the sixties. So what should NASA be doing nowadays? The, the, the question I kind of really have for, for NASA, um, is in, under the, under the situation where SpaceX basically achieves its technical goals, which is developing a functional starship that kind of works and then goes forth to develop moon bases and Mars bases and things like that. What sub part of that system does NASA want to own or the discrete NASA centers individually want to own? Because there's like 15 different NASA centers, they all have their different areas of expertise, um, and and there are just thousands of very very clever people who work there, who've been working on a bunch of kind of different projects. But but there's no reason why they couldn't all be kind of operationalized and pointing in the same direction. Um, and then you say, well, you know, building a building a city or a base on the moon is extremely labor intensive, and we have this standing army just kind of sitting there that already knows what it's doing and how to do it. So how would NASA then basically fill out that that space um and i think now is the right time to ask that question because nasa is you know actually as far as government agencies goes it's relatively nimble but it's still not you know it still can't necessarily turn on a dime you're australian elon's from south africa 
Uh, what yeah. is it about the American? We're basically the same. Same, yeah, pretty much. Uh, that's not where I'm going though. What What is it about the sort of American space ecosystem, in and sort of education system, however you want to take this, that like sort of works for foreigners coming here to study and contribute? Yeah, I mean, um, Elon has talked at some length about his reasons for migrating from South Africa, and they're they're different to my reasons from coming from Australia. To be clear, I think. Migrants have different reasons sure. for moving. Um, but certainly I think Elon saw that his interests of, of doing kind of tech development for the nascent internet back in the late 1990s was not being well served by staying in South Africa. Um, and certainly for me personally, um, studying overseas and Caltech is a is a you know, extremely prestigious university uh, for, for my particular interest at the time was an obvious step. But then, you know, as, as we both landed here in our respective ways, found that the United States is kind of rightfully the center of the uh, space industry. And just there are... The United States is a strange and weird place. There, it's a place where you know, universal healthcare, which is basically a given almost anywhere else in the civilized world, uh, is impossible. Uh, but a lot of things that are impossible everywhere else are easy. And so it's just it's a really kind of powerful place uh, down here in the, particularly I think in Los Angeles area uh, for that sort of thing. And I should add, until recently, Australia didn't even have a space program, like an official space program. So was there anything you know thinking about back at your time at NASA that kind of worked in the way that they? sort of interacted with foreign nationals or brought them brought them in the fold? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to get on my soapbox here. Um, in, in my view, like one of the major strengths of the United States has been its ability to attract and continue to attract talent from around the world to come and work there. And and it really is like the kind of migration destination of choice for almost everyone. And I might add that as a you know an academic or someone with a, studying a PhD, in, in many ways, the, the restrictions of the US migration system didn't really apply to me. Like essentially, like if there's a class of people world over who kind of, kind of get in through the back door, it's academia. Um, but even then the U S immigration system is a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. And it, it places such undue harm and burdens on people coming from around the world uh, for absolutely no reason and no marginal benefit. Uh, and part of the reason for that is that the people who are impacted by it have no voice. They have no ability to, to vote. They have, they're not a political constituency. And so the organizations uh, who are responsible for dealing with them, um, while, you know, occasionally staffed by people who are you know, well-motivated, um, they're not accountable to anyone. Uh, in, in, in a way, and it's not, a, it's not an important political question. So I think that's a real shame and, and an overall threat to U.S. Uh, kind of competitiveness, actually, is, is making migration to the United States more difficult. Now, uh, NASA, NASA does its best as far as, as, far as dealing with the, the difficulty of getting foreigners uh, on and off lab, particularly JPL, uh, is more friendly, I think, than the other NASA centers. But, uh, but certainly for people I know, and I have a green card, but people I know who don't have a green card, um, it's, it's a, a daily humiliation uh, to, to even get on lab. Um, and to be able to work there. And in many cases, they have been after years of trying to get a, even a green card, which is just permission to live and work in the United States and pay taxes. The difficulty of doing that, even as like world experts in building fundamental systems that serve the US strategic and national interest, they can't make it happen. And they're forced to leave because they just can't deal with every day being showing up for work, getting paid 20% less than anyone else because they have no other alternatives and, and then having to get their friend to come and badge them into the building you know, and then escort them from room to room in case there's some kind of spy. It's, it's a disgrace. Um, and, and it's, and it's an enormous strategic, uh, you know, risk for the United States to continue to treat people this way, uh, basically for no marginal benefit. But yeah, that's, that's my soapbox there. And, uh, you know, yeah. But I mean, and here's the thing, like I'm a, I'm a green card PhD from Australia, which is like traditionally had a very strong alliance with the United States. And even then it was, it is, and, and it continues to be for me a total pain in the ass. Um, but for, for many of my colleagues who are, you know, had the misfortune of being born in India, where like for some reason there's a 50 year backlog or something or Russia or any other country, uh, who are no less patriotic, who, who no less see themselves as being American, who have Americanized, who've come here, who identify 
with its mission and who want to help the United States prevail in its you know geopolitical uh, struggles with its adversaries, uh, who are basically forced to say no, fuck off, go back home. We're not interested. Um, and and it's uh, it's it not only is it unfair, like boohoo, it's it's just also totally counterproductive. Uh, it's a it's a real problem. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the thing is. Um, the, the laws, I understand why the laws exist, but if you are a foreigner and you want to work for Northrop Grumman or something working on weapon systems, Northrop Grumman is a large enough organization with like, you know, enough lob lobbying power, enough lawyers, they can actually kind of make it happen. Um, but NASA, which is you know, merely a government agency with a $20 billion year budget and you know, 20,000 employees and about the same number of contractors is not a big enough organization. Or so they claim to be able to basically, uh, dance to the government's tune when it comes to serving the needs of their foreign workers and actually getting them green cards in a timely fashion. Um, so it's kind of crazy because like you know, the laws are written in such a way that, that people working on civilian space programs for NASA, uh, are basically treated as though they're, they're spies trying to exfiltrate, you know, uh, weapons designed secrets to North Korea. Whereas people who foreigners who actually want to work on actual weapon systems can kind of get in the front door basically in the way that the law was intended to be used. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, it, uh, it's broken on many different levels. Maybe I thank you for that Casey. Maybe as a follow-up, like, yeah. What is the relative importance of talent versus capital in space? Ah, well, that's a thorny question. Uh, talent versus capital. Um, well, I think I think you are kind of asking me to have a go at Jeff Bezos here. Um, so I will I will avoid taking the bait immediately. But no, I think I think it you know like like NASA and private industry they're obviously complementary. Um, it's basically impossible to do anything cheaply in space. You need to have a lot of money. Um, you need to have access to a lot of money. Uh, and actually, the largest source of money is the U.S. government, which is why. NASA basically remains the customer of choice for a lot of these different, uh, launches. Um, but it is also fairly clear to me that if you want to really move the needle, you can't do it with, with average people who are poorly motivated, but actually I would add that more or less average people who are well motivated become not average very quickly. So like, I think the real the real strength of SpaceX has been that it's been able to attract, you know, really ambitious people from, from all over the United States and in some cases all over the world to come and work on their mission and just like, just like work, work themselves extremely hard because they're motivated by becoming the best. And, uh, and the track record shows that, um, and I think the difficulty that, that, that some of the other kind of launching companies have had in, in kind of retaining talent, um, and in competing with that kind of speaks to the relative lack of ambition in their respective articulated visions or their, um, kind of on the ground ability to advocate with, uh, sorry, advocate for and work with their talent to help them self-actualize. And that's an important thing because it's, it doesn't just take ambitious well-motivated people, they also have to be like allowed to do their job. Um, and I think a lot of, especially large organizations really struggle to get out of their own people's way. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to think about that framework in the context of what China is trying to do. Um, because there are absolutely, you know, a one engineers and who are really care about and love space and want to do crazy SpaceX type stuff and the capital for some private sector firms, you know, some some private space firms is, you know, sort of there, not quite there to the level that um, uh, you know, you're seeing in a um, uh, in, in a SpaceX per se, but but nothing to sneeze at. But the 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 challenge is that China, the, the Chinese space ecosystem, at the end of the day, is run by Cask and Kasich, which are two giant enormous SOEs, which have so far not proven themselves to be able to you know retain and motivate the talent in the way that you've uh you've talked about, and it's unclear whether or not the system will allow, um, you know, a, a SpaceX to develop in such a way that, you know, in the U.S., like, that, like, uh, you know, the, the future of the Chinese space ecosystem is 
by and large dependent on the success of one firm uh, in a way yeah. which the U.S. kind of is at this point. And, and, you know, that has produced magic, but is also something that's like much more uncomfortable, I think, for um, when you have a one party system where the, you know, number one guy is saying that the state should be in the lead for this sort of thing uh, than what you've been able to see develop in the in the U.S. over the past few decades. Yeah, I think I basically agree with that, although I don't think it's 100% cut and dried. Um, certainly SpaceX is, is leading the charge in the U.S. private launch space. And and I think it's really understated just how far ahead they are. But also their competitive advantage uh, can be eroded in a relatively small number of years simply by talent transfers and by people copying what has been shown to work. Sure. Um, but it should also not be understated that um, the Chinese space program has had a series of, of phenomenal successes recently with their lunar rover and their Mars rover landers that you know, should not be understated. There are clearly people, I don't know who they are, but there are clearly people working in those programs who are, who are deeply brilliant, deeply dedicated, and obviously have the benefit of managers who understand when it's, you know, basically how to get the job done. Um, and this is probably not the case, you know, across the entire Chinese space program. It's certainly not the case across the Chinese government in general, but, you know, it seems to me that at least for the time being, there are people in charge who understand the importance of, of kind of safeguarding the ability of, of those people to innovate and to, and to deliver their products. And if they can avoid screwing that up, then, you know, it's basically, I think that we could be in for a real competition. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting because it is one of these places where you have seen sort of real technological successes. And it's almost the sort of thing where when the eye of Sauron looks too closely at it, um, it may actually end up burning down a lot of what's sort of exciting and good that's been happening um, from a, yeah. guess, a civil space perspective. Well, hopefully they don't have any too prominent failures, which would bring that down on them. But I think by the same token, uh, the success of Tesla and, and SpaceX can be partly attributed to the fact that Elon has not had the time to work full time on either of them. Um, <laughs> so he's had to, he's had to delegate and rely, like even though he hates doing it, he's had to rely on other people. And I think that has uh, allowed him to to play to his strengths, which is you know clearly deeply brilliant uh, sort of systems engineering uh, or you know kind of system stuff. But at the same time, you know allowing other people to run up. As far as I know, there's like no kind of like competitive analysis group at NASA that's kind of keeping track of what foreign agencies that we are not in bilateral relationships with is up to. Um, and also, as far as I know, very little of NASA's senior leadership um, is kind of culturally fluent or, or linguistically fluent with Chinese. Um, so my understanding is that like people who speak Chinese, uh, who, who kind of monitor the Chinese web can kind of glean information about who's working on what where and when, but I'm certainly not in that camp. And so it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a blind spot, I think, um, in terms of, because like, it would seem obvious to me that if this was a concern of the US government, they would just kind of reach out quietly and be like, hey, you want to move to the United States? But if, if anything, the, the history of, particularly of JPL in particular, uh, has been almost the opposite. Uh, one, of the co one of the founders of JPL was a Chinese national who was kind of hounded in the Red Scare and, and subsequently deported, and then went to China and basically built their nuclear weapons program from the ground up. So like, talk about geopolitical owned goals. Like, let's not do that again. <laughs> I still want to talk about Starlink. Um, so you, you, so yeah. So Casey, you mentioned, um, you know, the fact that SpaceX is only selling a few things, and you know, when yeah. people, it's got this hundred billion dollar valuation, and like a lot of that is coming, you know, not only from Elon Magic, but also this, um, the the, the promise that Starlink provides. So, so what is it? What's revolutionary about it? And and what's your take on its ability to um uh, to end up paying for Elon's uh, Mars dreams? Yeah, I think Elon has quite a number of plays in, in kind of progress, uh, and the hope is that any one of them would ultimately be able to supply the the amount of private capital necessary to do something on Mars, even if NASA doesn't come to the table in a timely fashion. And that's just kind of wise, because like that's a big uncertainty, so it makes sense to try and get as rich as possible. Um, 
Starlink is, is definitely one of those. And I think, I mean, the, the kind of bottom line thing is like, we will build an internet satellite constellation that's able to deliver high quality, high speed internet cheap, more cheaply than ground-based fiber providers have been able to. Um, and part of that is that yeah, you and I both know that, that by and large, uh, terrestrial cable providers in the United States and the world over are uncompetitive kind of monopolies that, that basically rent seeking. Um, whereas SpaceX is anything but. But the other kind of observation that led them into it was that um, there are only a handful of businesses right right now in, in space that kind of make money in Earth observation communications and launch. Um, and and they were only in the launch space, which is actually the smallest of those three. And that the despite the fact that communication satellites typically were paying much more than SpaceX would charge for launch, they would still end up making a lot of money. Um, so, you know, it might be, might be necessary to kind of vertical, verticalize in that space. Like how, how dare their customers have bigger mar- like you know, better margins than they do. You know, once you kind of, again, examine the first principles, nature of the problem and turn the crank, it becomes quite clear that if you can produce satellites for less than a million dollars that have, um, you know, uh, software-defined radio capabilities that are closely aligned to uh, contemporary developments in computer technology rather than, you know, the best we could do in 1980, that you could actually do this kind of world-encompassing low-Earth orbit uh, constellation that would be able to deliver the bandwidth required. And then it's a simple matter of execution, which is uh, actually, I think, a wonder of the modern world uh, that they've been able to build and test and launch and operate these things but yeah there you go it actually exists so can you run through like the sort of like market sizing efforts and like competitiveness versus yeah i mean the the internet as a whole is kind of uh, growing at enormous pace and has been for a very long time uh, i think i wrote a blog about this about two years ago which i'm pleased to see has aged extremely well um and i think at the time i said that um demand for kind of bits is growing by about 25 percent a year it may have bumped up quite a bit uh, during the intervening COVID pandemic um and so you know, there's, there's obviously huge, huge advantages there. Um, one of the, the key challenges with satellite internet is that, um, there's kind of a density restriction to, um, how much data can be provided to a given area. Um, but actually it's, it's not a such a problem for Starlink because in general, um, internet users in cities are already kind of reasonably well served by competing different, different competing providers. Whereas, uh, people who are looking for broadband in rural areas either have no options or they have one bad option. Um, and in rural areas, there's the, the amount of data that, that Starlink can move is, is not a constraint. Um. And so it means that Starlink has the ability to basically be like the default internet provider of choice for almost all of the world's population outside of major metropolitan areas. Um, and I think that's, that's an important thing to say in you know, rural America where broadband is expensive and not very good, but it's also enormously transformative and potentially transformative in other parts of the world um, where, you know, basically due to accidents of geography, they have largely been cut out of the tremendous um, kind of cultural and economic gains that have been provided by the internet. And... So I think, I think that's like, that's like it, when you, when you think back in a hundred years, what will have been the, the biggest impact of Starlink? It'll be, well, over the course of five years, we're able to roll out internet to the other three and a half billion people on the, on the earth. So right now it's like $1,200 a year, the satellite's 600 bucks. And then it's like a hundred some odd dollars a month for this. Do you see pathways to make that affordable to the developing world? Yeah. In terms of cost, um, I mean, essentially there are different ways of bundling it, but, but in truly re- remote areas. There's, there's not really a need to have a phased array antenna. So you could have like an asset tracker type antenna, you know, cell phone type antenna. They'll be able to communicate with satellites. So this would be useful, you know, over oceans or sparsely populated areas, and obviously at much lower marginal cost. Um, and then, and then actually, I think the major impact in, in more rural parts of the world with underdeveloped uh, communication infrastructure will be using Starlink to provide backhaul for local cellular networks. So in many of these places, there actually are, are already cellular networks that are used and, you know, like mobile banking is a fairly normal thing in parts of Africa, but they will be able to then get kind of 5G speeds because the local cell towers will all have uh, phased array antennas that are talking directly to the constellation. 
I say I should say I, that the price point would be calibrated to local market conditions. Um, you know, I think it's a common criticism to say that, oh, you know, like, you know, Elon is just out here to like recolonize Africa and take a lot of money from people. And by the way, his dad owned an emerald mine or something. But I think that's an unfair criticism. I think, I think people, you know, have the agency to decide whether they want to subscribe to a service that provides them data and stuff. And if that enables them to, you know, improve their quality of life and their net you know, economic output, because they have access to this kind of global market that's intermediated by the internet, uh, then yeah, sure. Of course they can afford to spend 10% of their net increase in wealth on, on the service that provides that, uh, that provides that data to them. Um, so I think that, you know, it, it's a, it's a really good case study example of like, um, you know, new technology, basically Im improving conditions and generating value for everyone at the table. So Elon somehow got into some Twitter fight with the Taliban, um, where at some point he said, uh, that, you know, someone asked him like, if the Taliban's going to block, uh, the internet, like, can you beam Starlink to Afghanistan? Do you remember the exact line, Casey? Well, I think, I think Elon's tweet reply was like, what can they do about it? They can shake their fist at the sky, which you know, uh, it's a nice image. Um, so, so does this make sense in the China context, perhaps? I'd be very surprised if there weren't already people trying to clandestinely connect Starlink terminals in China to the internet. However, uh, to, to Starlink, um, I, I think we should not overstate like the importance of this. First of all, I don't know a single person in China who has been unable to get around the firewall one of a hundred different ways. It's just not that hard if you know what you're doing. And then, you know, China actually, you know, unlike Afghanistan has the ability to, to remotely monitor satellite, uh, like radio emissions and potentially like prosecute people for violating their own internal, um, you know, radio standards, just as the United States would, if you had an unlicensed transmitter, nevertheless, you know, I think, uh, you know, there are, it's quite a, a wide variety of potential circumstances where you could see, um, extra legal usage of, or, or like, you know, some of the, some of the licensing information may not be completely clear. And so you could see Starlink being connected to by in, in parts of the world that you wouldn't otherwise expect. It seems to me that if this is a problem, it's more likely that Starlink would end up cutting a deal with China and get official dispensation to operate there under some sort of conditions, just as many other Western countries have. Uh, and particularly given Elon's reasonably friendly relationships, particularly with the Shanghainese authorities, with the yeah. Chinese, with the uh, Tesla Gigafactory there. Um, I don't think he'd be looking to pick any fights, but, but you never know. It's, it's hard to predict. Yeah. I was going to uh, bring up the, the Tesla angle. Um, before we go into rapid, any any other sort of like Elon slash China thoughts watching his relationship with the country evolve over the past few years? You know, I, I'm kind of getting out ahead of my uh, you know ahead of my skis here, but the um, if you think about what what U.S. soft power has traditionally done very well, it has been things like U.S. industrialists providing technology to other countries that has had a net improvement to the world, and I think China, as much as anyone, recognizes their uh, geopolitical vulnerability to supply chain interruptions for um, oil and gas. And so, you know, it is in everyone's best interests that they figure out a way of electrifying the transport, um, and other aspects of their economy as quickly as possible. And I don't see Tesla setting up a factory there as hurting that effort, let alone hurting it anywhere else in the world. Uh, the Chinese are simply the best, if not in the top three, when it comes to global manufacturing ability right now. And I think if we're going to have a hope as a species of pulling off surviving climate change this century, we all kind of need to put aside our geopolitical differences in that, in that sphere, at least, and just kind of crush that problem and then go back to hating each other for traditional reasons. All right. Casey, overrated or underrated? Space debris? Uh, underrated? Well, I think I think um, space debris is an enormous concern, but below about 600 kilometers, it deorbits in a, over a time scale that means that it won't be an insurmountable problem. Above that, it might be. Um, but there are certainly technological solutions that could be applied that would make it less of a problem. Um, I just don't think that uh, it's been kind of approached seriously enough yet because of 
basically anti-satellite uh, technology proliferation concerns. But you know, we're going to have to tackle that problem sooner or later. Geoengineering. I don't know. Okay. Good answer. Carbon capture. Overrated, underrated. Carbon capture. Underrated. Hell yeah. Why? Well, I mean, I was just talking about strategic vulnerability to access to hydro hydrocarbons, but it turns out that we'll be able to make them by capturing carbon directly from the air, which we've been helpfully enriching for the last century or so, and um, and using very cheap solar power. Whoa, so wait, let's slow down. Slow down. Watch this space. We're making we're making oil from polluted CO two in the sky. Yes, yeah, carbon, same carbon, arguably slightly more radioactive. <laughs> let's get the let's get the five minute version. We got to stay on this for a minute. All right, so. Uh, some of your listeners may know if they read my blog that um, I recently resigned from NASA to basically uh, take a stab at that the climate change problem in the term, in the form of making a company to make synthetic fuels. So the idea there is that instead of um, extracting fossil fuels from the crust and burning them and releasing the carbon dioxide of the atmosphere for free because it's cool and normal to pollute our environment, um, we would instead uh, capture carbon dioxide from the air um, and then reduce it back to methane or other fossil fuels like um, you know carbon carbon fractions. Uh, using electricity and technology, um, the electricity coming from solar power, uh, and produce fossil fuels that are backwards compatible with our existing infrastructure, um, and use that instead. So basically uh, closing off the tap that is continuing to pump uh, carbon from the crust into the atmosphere, uh, and at the same time uh, creating a technology that uh, can be financed through traditional channels because it generates net value um, to gain the ability as a species to essentially scrub carbon dioxide from our atmosphere at a massive scale. And why don't we close with the sort of first principles rationale for this being a somewhat economically feasible thing? Yeah, I think I think it's a, a pretty pretty impossible thing to do uh, with expensive electricity, and and the most confusing aspect of it is that you know right now one of the leading uses of natural gas is burning to create electricity. So given that that is less than one hundred percent efficient, uh, the reverse process, which is also much less than one hundred percent efficient, doesn't seem to make much sense. Uh, but that's overlooking the fact that there have been enormous gains in terms of our ability to harness uh, solar power with solar panels. And while you know gas has the ability, has the advantage that you can operate it at night, uh, solar panels have the advantage that they have no moving parts, uh, essentially extremely low maintenance requirements, um, and they depend on our very own pet fusion reactor in the sky uh, that comes up every morning. And if you kind of look at the the cost improvement curves for solar power, it becomes fairly clear that even if it's you know only forty percent efficient to turn natural gas into electricity and 30% efficient to turn electricity back into natural gas, uh, that if you combine those two effects, um, that, that solar will be cheap enough that it will soon be cheaper to go in the other direction. And so we'll kind of see this a couple of years of kind of war and complementarity. Um, and then, and then, you know, because solar curves will continue to, or solar costs will continue to reduce. It's inevitable that no matter how basic and, um, crude the approach taken to turning carbon dioxide back into fossil fuels, it will win. Um, and actually, in order to win as quickly as possible, crude and basic is an advantage because the hard part will be building plants that do this quickly enough. Casey, I've done a number of episodes sort of about deep tech and sort of and, yeah. and, and like investments that will probably not pay off until, you know, 10, maybe 15 years down the uh, on the horizon. What's your sense of the sort of appetite for funding stuff like this? Uh, I know you're only a month in. But... Right now, the, the, the response from investors has been very encouraging. Um, for, for this, but I'm also not the first company in this space. Um, and nor will I be the last by any means. I think, um, in, in some ways led by the success of Tesla and SpaceX has been a renewed interest, um, amongst VCs for investment in deep tech, um, uh, Amazon for that matter as well. 
basically companies that have a very slow burn as, as privately held companies and, and eventually um, generate enormous wealth. And I think this is actually a positive thing because um, gains tend to accrue exponentially. So in some ways, like the longer you can, you can keep the finance, you know, the financing stuff open, the more potential gains are possible. Um, and this is a good thing because it will divert the attentions of, of kind of smart, motivated entrepreneurs away from like build a photo app, get a hundred million users, flog it to Facebook, six months, wash, rinse, repeat to actually trying to solve deep and important long-term problems. Um, I think it's also a reflection of the fact that, that, you know, we're seeing just steadily increasing quantities of, of capital into, into, you know, VC markets and things like that. And it's kind of running out of things to spend money on. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's a good, it's a good trend overall. Any closing recommendations of books to read or, or, or types of media to consume to help people, myself included, uh, sort of ingest the way you think about uh, these types of questions and, and apply them to other emerging technology areas? Uh, I should have had something ready to go here, but, um, but no, I think, I think just in the last two years, we've seen an enormous profusion of, of really kind of clever, dedicated people who are trying to understand this, this space stuff and communicate it well to the public. Uh, and so like the, the obvious cases are like, um, Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, Eric Berger, Jeff Faust, um, I can't remember who some of the other people are, but basically they all, they all follow each other on Twitter. So you can, you could very quickly pick up who these people are. Um, and, and just the important thing is when you're reading something, just kind of understand if it's, you know, if they're being sensationalized or if, or if the person writing it kind of seems to know what they're talking about or has good sources, but uh, I don't know. I just, I just try and like focus my reading on, on sources of information that have good signal to noise, signal to noise ratio. Um, because my brain is already full of garbage and I don't want to put any more in. This was yeah. so much fun. Thank you so much, Casey. Yeah.
Yeah.